All right, Isaac just read from Galatians. If you want to turn there, we're going to dig in a little bit. Galatians is in the New Testament. Uh, so that if you go to the middle and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Acts, and then Romans, and then First and Second Corinthians, and then Galatians. If you get to Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, you've gone too far. We are in Galatians 3, the end of chapter 3 at verse 23, and we're going through the beginning of chapter 4. So I was not here last week, but I had Ryan um, email me his sermon, and I read it, and it was, it was stout. That's the only word I can use to describe it, and I encourage you guys to listen to it online. I was reading it and underlying things as I read like I was reading a commentary or a book on Galatians. It was strong, and it was so encouraging. But last week, as Ryan taught us through, through the first part of chapter 3, um, it was really this big picture of how the law and the grace work together, how the law was designed to really show us our need for grace. The law was designed to show us and to reveal to us our sinful condition um, in our hearts and to reveal our brokenness and to show us that there was really no way that we could get to God on our own. That's the purpose of the law that we talked about last week, sort of this macro picture of the law and grace and how they work together. Today, I think God, Paul, in this passage here, as he finishes out this discussion, it gets more personal. It goes from a macro picture to more of a micro picture. The micro picture of what happens to a man and to a woman when they encounter both the reality of their sin, but also they encounter the amazing reality of grace. The section that Isaac just read for us is really about a change um, in legal status for the Christ follower. Um, a legal status that Paul is talking about here is, is not like a Facebook status that you can change every week. You can go from single to um, complicated to in a relationship back to complicated and right out of a relationship in the course of five days. That's not the kind of status that Paul is talking about here. He is talking in this text about a permanent change in status. Essentially in this whole section, Paul is saying you were under a guardianship. But now you are sons and daughters of the king. The law is described in verse 24 of chapter 3 and then again in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4 as our guardian. And Paul is using legal terminology here. Some of you may know or may not know that I used to be a lawyer. Used to be a lawyer. I am not currently a lawyer. I'm making that very clear. Um, I, I, I remember when I transitioned uh, in 2001, I left my law practice, went to work at the church. I was following a very um, stalled calling into ministry that happened when I was in the sixth grade. And I remember being so excited after I went to work at the church and I got my first call for pastoral counseling. And I read up and I prayed up. I was so spiritually ready and the people came in and they sat in my office and I was like, well, what's up? And they pulled out their wills. <laughs> they wanted help with their wills. That was 18 years ago, and this is still happening to me. <laughs> Despite the fact that I haven't practiced law in 18 years. And I've never practiced law in California. And when I did practice law, I practiced oil and gas litigation and title work and mergers and acquisitions. And despite the fact that it's illegal for me to give legal counsel in the state of California. <laughs> Now, I'm glad to talk to you, even if most of our time is going to be me telling you that I really can't give you legal counsel, and mainly I'll just spend time giving you a list of questions to ask a lawyer when you finally do go get the lawyer that I'm going to encourage you to go hire. <laughs> All that being said, I still really get a kick out of legal terminology when, when Paul uses this sort of language, this legal jargon. 
And Paul begins this passage by describing our pre-Christian status um, in this very legal terminology. And this is what he says. This is the first part of the first point of this text. He says, before Christ, our legal status was that of a ward under the guardianship of the law. So essentially, a guardian is, is a legal status that is conferred on someone to care for the interests of another person. And that other person, the person a guardian cares for, is called a ward. And when someone is appointed guardian over another person, they assume the obligations of caring for that person, of looking out for their various interests, maybe their health interests, maybe their uh, physical interests, their financial interests, whatever. Sometimes you see actually guardians, uh, people that are a ward of the state, like in our foster care program, where the state is essentially the guardian. Maybe you can see, you might see just a child generally who is appointed a private guardian for whatever reason. They don't have parents or there's some reason their, kids can't, their parents can't take care of them. You may see an elderly person who is um, put under a guardianship because they can no longer care for themselves. You might remember Britney Spears back in the day when she shaved her head and sort of went off the rails. She was appointed a guardian, even though she was young and able and everything else, she was appointed a guardian because in her mental state at that time, she could not take care of herself. But as Paul is talking about a guardian in this particular passage and in the Roman world at this time, a legal guardian would very often be appointed to actually care for the child in the father's name. The legal guardian of a child would be given the responsibilities and the duties to care for the ward in, in, in all aspects, in education and, and taking care of their physical needs. But the goal was to take them and help them grow to a place of maturity, a, a, to help them get ready to be adults. It would not have been an intimate or a personal relationship at all. Um, in, in the day when Paul's talking about this, it would have been almost a, a harsh relationship. It would have been um, some relationship that was very clearly based on rewards for good behavior and punishment for bad behavior. When you think about a, a, a guardian, as Paul is talking about here, you might think of a mean governess like we would have read about or seen in, 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 in prior times or, or a really, really harsh tutor. Part of the job of this guardian would have been to keep them away from their father to keep contact and intimacy with the, their physical father at a minimum. So even in this day, while necessary, the, the guardian may have been necessary, even in our day, I, I, I did a few adult guardianships in my practice of law. Never once did the, the ward want to be put under a guardianship, even when it was necessary. The idea of being under a guardian carries with it some sense of bondage. And this is why Paul equates being under a guardian as being enslaved in um, verse 23. He says, we are held captive under the law and we are imprisoned. The law is our guardian until Christ came. In 4, 1 and 2, he talks about a child being like a slave, even though the child may be a technical heir to a fortune. So technically he owns everything, but, but he's like a slave because he can't access it until he reaches a certain age. And that's really kind of how it is in our modern world, too, with our kids. How many of your kids have ever said, you treat me like a slave when you do something horrid, like ask them to wash the dishes or make their bed? But there's a truth that a child today cannot inherit, for example, until they reach adulthood. If, if, I, if Stephanie and I were to die, my kids would not get 
our estate outright. It would be put under a guardianship until they reach a certain age. So here Paul is equating the law as being in this role of guardian. And he's explaining how the law acted to instruct and to expose a greater need like he did last time. Last week when Ryan taught through the first part of chapter 3, the law had a purpose. It, it has an instructional purpose, yes, but it also has a purpose of pointing out something different, of pointing people to something different. It's even, the, so, so the, as, the, as the tutors or as the guardians of that day would have been trying to grow these kids, these, these young people to adulthood, it's similar to our role as parents today. We have restrictions on them, but hopefully they're purposeful and they are intentional to take our kids to something beyond childhood. And the law, Paul is saying, did the same thing. It was an imprisonment of sorts, and it reflected an impersonal relationship with God. It was a fear-based relationship based on rewards and based on consequences, but it was pointing to something amazing. It pointed to grace, not to bondage. It pointed to freedom, it didn't point to immaturity, it pointed to maturity. It didn't point to an impersonal God, it pointed to a loving personal father. And at this beginning part of this, at the beginning of, in verse 23 of this text and at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul here is setting up this incredibly dramatic picture of the change in status that happens when we go from ward to adopted son. And that leads us to the second overall point of this text. For the Christian, our legal status changes from ward of the law to child of God. Paul says in 3, 25 and 26, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. I think in this one sentence lies the most profound truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our status is changed forever through faith in him. We are no longer slaves. In Romans 5:10 it says we are no longer enemies of God. We are no longer kept at arm's length from relationship with God like we were in the law. We are now sons and in that idea of what it means to be a child of God, what it means to be an adopted son or daughter of God, there is so much we could talk about. So much Paul talks about throughout the rest of Galatians and, and in, in his other letters. But in this text today, I want to highlight a couple of things. And the first one is this. If you are in a relationship with God through Christ, you are a child of God now. Paul is talking to Christians all over this region of Galatia. And he is intentionally here using the present tense as he speaks to Christ followers in Galatia. He says, present tense, you are sons. He does not say you could be sons down the road if you work hard enough and if you do all the right things. Being a son of God is not a goal or something to strive for. He says, this is your reality. If you have surrendered your life to Christ, this is your reality right now. We get this amazing picture of how this happened in chapter 4, verse 4. He says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is a powerful verse. 
First, Jesus came exactly when it was planned for him to come. This fullness of time, it's interesting in this context of guardianship. You know, it really could refer to the idea of a guardianship having a planned end date, as it often does. For example, kids under guardianship that would end when they turn 18. But in any event, what we see in this passage is that it was planned. Jesus came in perfect timing, God's perfect timing. And it says he was born of a woman. That means he was a real human being. And it says he too was under the law as any human being. But it says Jesus redeemed those under the law. This word redeem is the same word that you would use if, if a slave was freed from slavery by being purchased from his or her prior owner. In our case, in this text, the owner of the slave would be the law. And if Jesus redeemed us from the law, that means he paid the full price of the law. Or another way to say that is he was born under the law, but unlike us, he was able to fulfill the law's demands, not only on himself, but also law's demands on us as well. He paid the price for us to be redeemed. And to be redeemed means that we are made free. Remember the context of this letter that Ryan has been teaching as we've been in this book. The Judaizers are trying to add things to salvation. They are trying to put conditions on our salvation. They are trying to make salvation grace plus or Jesus plus. And Paul is reminding them here that they are sons, that they are redeemed, that they are free right now. Sometimes in our recognition of our need for God, we still act like kids who are under a guardianship, trying to get God's blessing by doing things and not doing things and despairing when we don't get something exactly right because we fear that God may reject us. Paul says, quit acting like you are still under a guardian. God has made you sons. The word sons here is very intentional. So so Paul very, very much could have said sons and daughters. But remember that he is talking to all Christ followers in the region of Galatia. So he is talking to a group of men and women. And it would have been an amazing thing for the women in that room to hear Paul say that they were sons. Because in that culture, women had no rights of inheritance or a real place in a family. So when Paul says you are all sons, and he is speaking to men and women, he is telling the women, essentially, you now have the status of a son. You are on the same level as a son. If he had said sons and daughters, it would have signified something lesser for the women. So he's saying, you may be a woman, but you have the status in this culture. You have the status of a son. Today, at least here in the West, this is still true in some cultures, but here we can say son or daughter and we get the exact same effect. But at the time when Paul said son to these women, it was a powerful statement of an incredible change in their status. We also see in this section this amazing picture of equality that happens. But, but equality is such a buzzword today, I, I think we can say it a better way. I think what we see here is not just equality, we see a unity of status and a unity of value and a unity of identity that happens in Christ. He says this, Christ unifies and equalizes the core identity of every Christ follower. And he does this really in two ways. In verse 27 of chapter 3, Paul says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ 
have put on Christ. Put him on. This is powerful imagery. Paul loves to use the imagery of clothing. He often tells us things that we are to put on and tells us things that we should be taken off. But here, he says, put on Christ. Cover yourselves in Christ. He's saying Christ covers who you are. And he covers who you used to be. And he makes you into something completely new. When he begins this section, uh, verse 27 and 28, by saying put on Christ, he is beginning to set up the idea that our new primary identity is in Christ. There are no longer other things that define us, but Christ who defines us now. Then he goes on in verse 28. Uh, these, these are just powerful, beautiful words. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is not saying here that we are all somehow identical or without distinction. He's not telling people to let go of their cultural uniqueness or distinctives. Or he's not saying that everyone has to be like the Jews or everyone has to be like the Gentiles. He's not saying there's no difference in role or difference in design for the genders. He is saying we are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all equal in status. We are all equal in value when we are in Christ. It means that while we may have distinctive things about where we've come from and about our cultures and about our social status and about our gender, we may have all these different things, but he's saying those distinctives do not pit us against each other because our common identity in Christ binds us in ways that all of those other distinctive things cannot I love what Tim Keller said. He said, two people who are Christians have more in common with each other than with non-Christians of their own gender, social status, or ethnicity. What it means that as Christ followers, our primary identity becomes just that. I am a Christian before I am anything else. I'm a Christian before I'm an American. I'm a Christian before I'm of German descent. I am Christian before I'm a pastor. I am Christian before I'm white. I am Christian before I am a father. I am a Christian before I am a husband. I'm a Christian before anything else. And when we see each other that way, the things that se separate us on the surface should come down because first and foremost, when we see each other, we see fellow followers of Jesus. There should never be an adjective in front of our Christianity. We are simply, for every one of us that has a relationship, a life-saving relationship with Jesus Christ, we are simply Christians. This passage is not about Paul primarily wanting to advocate social change. This is not primarily to speak out against slavery or racism or discrimination. That's that, not that he wouldn't do that, but that's not what this is for right here. He is speaking to the Christian community and he is challenging them as fellow partakers of grace and faith that there should be no barriers between them. There should be no barriers between us. Finally, Paul finishes this section by circling back to the magnitude of, of the status change that happens when we connect with Christ in, in relationship. And he says this, essentially, in Christ we are adopted into God's family and we are co-heirs with Christ. He ends this section with verse 7. So you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
This is a monumental statement. There is no longer a guardianship in place. The law is no longer needed to act in that capacity because as Paul is saying, we have been adopted as sons. Our legal status has changed. Adoption is such a powerful image here. In a human sense, uh, adoption is a legal proceeding whereby a person who is not biologically born to a set of parents is legally re-identified as if he or she was a biological, chuple, a biological child of that couple. A couple cannot be forced to adopt. Adoption is a choice. But when they make that choice, the law recognizes an adopted child as having every right that a biological child would have of that particular couple. And the parents then, while the the child has the rights of a biological child, the parents have every obligation for those children as if they were their own biological children. My friend uh, in Texas, Shane, who I worked with for many years at the law firm, he he does a lot of adoption work. And he and his wife, Kim, recently adopted two teenage boys from the Ukraine to add to their family of five. Now they are a family of seven. But he said this, he said, very often the judge will say this to adopting parents before he grants the adoption. The judge will say this, do you understand that this is a permanent relationship created in law? When we enter relationship with Jesus, we are permanently transformed from a slave to the law to a child of God, an adopted son or daughter. This means, as it says in Romans 8, 17, that we are children of God, therefore we are fellow heirs with Christ. Our inheritance is the same as Christ's inheritance. We are full heirs of God. What a huge statement. I, I, so a guardianship puts caregiver requirements on the guardian, but the person under the guardianship has no rights to any sort of inheritance. But when a child is adopted, they become equally entitled to the riches of their parents along with any other biological children. The law treats them exactly the same. So for my friend Shane, their estate would have been divided three ways among their three kids. But after they adopted those two boys, their estate is now divided five ways among five kids. What does this mean for us to share in Christ's inheritance? So it says in verse 5 that we were redeemed. And what that means is that Christ pardoned us. He removed the legal liability um, we had for our sins under the law. And that's true. That's a part of our salvation. But when God calls us heirs with Christ, listen to this. It means that Christ not only removed the curse we deserved, but he gave us the blessing he deserved. Just think about that. He removed the curse we deserved, and he gave us the blessing he deserved. That reality should free us from striving to ever think that we can earn anything from God. I heard this, read this quote, God's honor and reward is just as secure and guaranteed as our pardon. God sees us as he sees his son. He sees Christ's righteousness When he sees us, he becomes not just some sort of benevolent father figure for us. He becomes our Abba father, becomes our dad. He loves us as he loves his own. And in him, we find the perfect father, intimate and just. 
I think about this when I think about my own kids. They will always be my kids. Stephanie and I will always love them. It doesn't matter. They can ignore our counsel. They can disobey. They can express disdain for our instruction. They can choose to ignore what we know to be best for them. And there may be consequences to all of that. But we love them and they are our children. And as Stephanie had to remind me just this week, this may tell you what kind of a week it was, just because they don't listen does not mean that we give up on them. It does not mean that we quit doing all that we can do to train them up as we have been called to do. We do not always please God in the way we live our lives. We don't please him with what we do. Sometimes we ignore him. Sometimes we question his instructions. Sometimes there are consequences. Sometimes we find ourselves under his perfect discipline as our father. It says in Hebrews 12, his discipline is proof that we are his children. And it is always for our good, even though it sometimes feels painful rather than pleasant. It is always for our good. It always bears the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We are promised that once we are in his hand, once we are in his family, nothing can ever remove us from that place of safety and that place of affection and that place of intimacy and that place of blessing. Jesus said in John 10 that nothing can snatch us out of the Father's hand. Our salvation, our inheritance is guaranteed. It is not something we earn. It is ours as a child of God. The amazing thing, though, is that while grace is free for us, the adoptee, it was incredibly costly for Jesus. My friend Shane and Kim saw a very small picture of this when they were about to go to Ukraine for several weeks to pick up the boys, and their other kids were scared and nervous. They didn't want them to go. And Kim said that she had a talk with her daughter, and she said, we have to go. There is no other way to bring them home. They cannot do this without us. There was a cost to Kim and to Shane and to their family to get their kids out of that orphanage and into their family. There was a much higher cost to get us into God's family. Jesus had to die. We see the agony of that reality when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he asks God, is there any other way to make this happen? But there was no other way. Jesus was the only one born under the law who could satisfy it because he was the only one without sin. And he did that on our behalf in a horrible, violent death. He paid that price so we wouldn't have to. Inclusion into God's family, though, is not a blanket truth for every created being. It is true for those who have been adopted, those who by faith enter a relationship with Jesus. And, and entering a relationship Jesus, with Jesus by faith is the simplest thing, and yet sometimes it, it feels like the hardest thing. Faith in Jesus requires belief. It does. It requires a belief and an understanding that we are sinners, that we are separated from God, and that Jesus is the provision for our salvation, for not our salvation, meaning our eternal connection with God in relationship as our Abba Father. But salvation also requires us to surrender. We have to surrender ourselves to him, to his care and to his blessing. And surrender feels weak. It feels, paradoxically, it feels different than what it actually is. Because in reality, surrender brings freedom. 
Because no longer after we surrender to him do we have to strive to make ourselves acceptable to him. Margaret's best friend, Grace, uh, was adopted. They both are 18 now. Was adopted from China when she was just a baby. There's a picture on the screen of Margaret and Grace. Margaret sitting on Grace. This is not long after Grace came to the U.S. And Steve, Grace's dad, is one of my good friends. And he tells this story that just so vividly describes what happens when God adopts us into his family. So Steve had to take Grace to the U.S. consulate to get her visa. Um, they were in Guangzhou, and, and there were, as he approached the consulate, he describes this vision of just hundreds of Chinese people that were just crowding around the fence, waiting to get in. They were trying to get into the consulate, hoping to get a visa so they could go to the U.S. And as Steve approached, he looked in all these people, and he thought, Grace, he said, was just tied snugly in a thing, whatever, one of those things that binds babies to you. Um, to his chest, and he was like, how am I going to get through this, this crowd? And he said he walked up there, and he said, he said it was like the crowd just parted. And he walked up to that gate, and he was let right in in front of all those other people to the consulate to get that visa. And Steve said this, he said, Grace was helpless. There was nothing Grace had or could offer. She was just a baby, and Grace was just as Chinese as all of those other people who were waiting outside the gate. The reason she was granted access to the American consulate, Steve said, was because she was with me, an American. That is how we come to the Lord. It is not based on any merit that we can offer. It is not based on anything we can do. It is not based at all on who we are. We are as helpless as baby Grace was, and we look just like the rest of the striving world. It is being with Jesus that allows us access to God. Imagine him carrying you in his arms, cradling you in his nail-scarred hands as he approaches the Father's gate, and Him presenting you fully a child of God. It's an, it's an overwhelming picture to me. But the reality is that we can reject God's offer of adoption. About five years ago, our friends Kim and Shane tried to adopt a different 16-year-old boy. At the last minute in the Ukraine, he chose to stay in the orphanage rather than face the unknowns of adoption. God doesn't force us to accept his offer of salvation, his offer of adoption into his family, his offer of a new identity. And this week I've thought of so many people who have that invitation before them but are questioning, I'm prayed for you that your heart would be soft. But the truth is if you are in this room and you have never surrendered your life to Jesus, that offer of adoption into his family still stands for you. There is a heavenly father who has an inheritance for you, an inheritance of blessing and of joy and of fulfillment and of purpose here on earth and an eternal inheritance in heaven with him. I can't think of anything more comforting in my life than knowing that I am safe and secure, that I am loved and cared for by my Abba Father in heaven. If this is you, 
We would love to talk with you after the service or next week or whenever you want to talk more about that. But I also know that there are many of you in this room who have a relationship with God where you see that he pardoned you, but you are still living like a slave under the guardianship of the law, not in the fullness of what it means to be a child and an heir of God. Today, your step of faith might just be to call on him as your Abba Father. Discover the richness of the intimacy. He freely offers you in Jesus.